So in meditation, you're uncomfortable. And that's when you know that you're learning to direct your mind the way you want to direct your mind as opposed to be directed by your mind. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Dr. Peggy Rios first heard about meditation as a college student and quickly dismissed it as not for her. At 28, she rediscovered meditation and began a journey she's been on for decades, one that has taught her much about paying attention and what really matters. We talk about therapy, paying attention, and how spirituality, broadly defined, can help us all navigate these difficult times. Hi, Peggy. Welcome to the show. Hi. So nice to be here, Sarah. I'm so glad you joined us. So you are new to our Counseling and Wellness Center, but you're not new to working with college students, are you? No, no. All of my professional life has had either a primary focus on university students or or some version of a connection to university students. Yes. And it's so lovely to have you join us at our counseling center. You moved up from the Miami area, right? That's right. Okay. Yep. So big change. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to talking to you today about, I think, what theoretically is a very broad topic, spirituality and mental health, but also exploring this through your own personal journey or a taste of your own personal journey with spirituality and what that, what that has meant to you in your life and how that has informed, you know, your practice of, of counseling and therapy. Mm-hmm. So when I think about this topic, I guess I would like to start with the question of what is spirituality? What does that even mean? So I'm glad that you asked that. I think that what I like to tell people is, is spirituality is one of those things that it's really hard to define, but when you feel it, you know it, you know what it is. And so I generally like to invite myself and the people that I'm in interaction with to let go of the ideas I have about spirituality and to be in the present moment in our conversation and to see when it comes into the room or it comes into our interaction. So that's what I would say to somebody who's asking me, hey, what's spirituality? That's interesting. You're saying it's something you can feel and experience. It's maybe less important to try to define it through words or ideas. Yes, I would definitely say that. Just in terms of how you have come to understand spirituality, how is it different or the same as what we talk about when we talk about religion? So I can tell you that I was born into a Catholic family, right? And so I remember from when I was very young, like maybe three, four years old, I was told that I was Roman Catholic and apostolic. Apostolic. That's what I was, right? And I was, and I could tell that it was very important. I didn't know what it actually meant. I just knew that it was very important. And I knew that there were certain rituals that went along with it. 
And one of the most uh, impactful one was like my going to mass with my great grandmother. And so there was like the routineness of that, the discipline of that, sort of the devotion to that process. And I thought, okay, well, that's what being Roman Catholic and apostolic is, right? And then the other part that I knew was silence. Like I have a lot of memories of sensations of being with my great grandmother, but not a lot of words. Like she didn't talk to me a lot, but we just went in, we did these particular rituals, right? So that's, I guess how I would say the difference was. I was at mass and that was religion. I had an experience with my great grandmother and as I walked into the church and that was spirituality. That's what I would see as the difference. That's beautiful. They both can have a lot of value. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So religion, I just thought of this just came to my mind. Religion might be a way of sort of giving us the structure, like an invitation to spirituality. And it can be a very good invitation, a very positive invitation, and it can be unpleasant. And I, and I say that because I think a lot of times if we equate the two, we shut ourselves off from spirituality because religion has been painful to us. And I think that that's a shame, you know, when yeah. that happens. Thank you for naming that. I think as therapists, we do see people who have felt mostly pain from religion because they didn't fit into that structure or that container um, and found it hurtful potentially to parts of themselves. But you're saying it, it's not always that way. That structure can be really supportive. And I'm almost imagining religion as the, like as the vessel and then spirituality is kind of what might happen within that vessel, within that empty space, what might occur. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. Okay. So, and then are there any other, you mentioned um, knowing that you were Roman Catholic from the time you were a tiny person who could know these things, any other parts of your identity or your background that you would want to share heading into this conversation? So I am Colombian, right? And so that means something to me. As I think about it today, I'm like, wow, being Colombian is just, there's so much to that, that I don't know how to narrow it. The one that comes to my mind now is other than the religious practice of Catholicism, which is very powerful in Colombia, I would say it's also about family and it's also about suffering. You know, there's been a lot of social political suffering in Colombia and sort of navigating that and making peace with that and making your way through that is important. Yeah. I'm glad that you bring up suffering because I had really thought about, you know, both spirituality and mental health take up the question of suffering. Mm-hmm. They really, and they, they both have a lot to say about the nature of suffering and then, and how we might, work with suffering. And so they don't always overlap, right? Spirituality and mental health are really broad topics and areas of practice. But I'm particularly interested in knowing a little bit more about your own journey with spirituality, how you have found your way into spirituality and and stayed, and what that means for how you try to support college and university students as they are suffering in various Mm -hmm. ways too. So I know that's very broad. Where would you Mm -hmm. like to start? 
Well, I, I'd like to give us, give ourselves the permission to pick out different threads and then to have the opportunity to have them come together, hopefully by the end of our talk. <laughs> I love it. So, so the one thread was the, my experience with my great-grandmother. Another thread is really that as a five or six-year-old, I used to love for my father to sing the song called La Cama Vacia. And it's about this person who was in the hospital and writes a letter to his friends because he used to be like super popular. And so imagine like somebody who went to parties and all that. And then he became ill. This is very depressing, but he became ill. <laughs> and he was all by himself there, you know, and he wanted somebody to go see him. And when that person finally went to go see him, the, the bed was empty, which means he had died. And it was devastating to me as a little five-year-old. And I'd be like, sing it to me again, sing it to me again. And I remember my mom being like, why are you asking that, right? I think now is my own struggle with suffering. Like, how do you grapple with, with these things, right? I'm going to tie it back to college students because I think that the things that we struggle with, they just take a different form in college students, but they're there. You know, unwanted aloneness is there. The fear of loss of control is there. Loss of hope is there. It's just, just in a different form than you see throughout other points in your life. So that's one thread. And then the other thread is um, I was a faculty member at UM, University of Miami, and then I was invited to apply uh, to head uh, the cancer support community, working with people with cancer. And I don't know. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, which didn't make any sense at all because I had a great job, but I was like, I'm going to go do that. And there I just met people, some of them quite young actually, but a lot of them not. And they had these really profound questions, right? About what their life meant and talking to them. I was in conversation with these folks for 15 years, you know, just 15 years of different programs. We functioned as a therapeutic community, so they came in and we taught them different skills, but we mostly were in conversation with them. That was an experience for me because one of the things, if I could take anything away from that, it would be that they would say, I wish I'd paid closer attention. And so when I think about college students, I think, oh, let me give them the opportunity to pay close attention to what is happening for them in their lives. So that's what I'm thinking when you ask me that question. How did it evolve? You know, it just sort of will, you know, wove itself together. Those three experiences is one of the things that is shaping how I see what I do with college students or university students right now. I find what you're saying incredibly moving. And I think that I tend to be moved by things that just strike a chord of truth. We live in a, in a world that is full of so much noise that when you talk about paying attention as being at the heart of people wondering what their lives really mean, whether they're at the precipice of a terminal illness or sitting in our offices with potentially 60, 80 years ahead of them trying to figure out what they're doing with their lives that question of what does my life mean and how can I work with my life with the difficulty, with these big, deep questions of my life. You're saying there's something about learning to pay 
attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I wonder if we could unpack just that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So paying attention and you mentioned silence. And as soon as you mentioned silence, the, the memory that came to my mind was again, my great grandmother in the silence, right. And being able to be quiet uh, and listen. And one of the things, and now you might've heard about this, well, an interview with Mother Teresa when they asked her about what she prayed for. And she said, oh, I don't, I don't speak a lot. I just, I listen. And then the interviewer said, oh, what does God say to you? And she said, he listens too. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's about listening, right? Silence and listening and being there. So what, I, what goes into that for me anyway, right, is the intention of paying attention to be in the session on purpose, right? So I am in the session, not because of any other reason that I'm, other than I'm just going to pay attention to what comes into the room when, when the student comes into the room. And then the other part is an attitude, right? So we pay attention with an attitude of sort of curiosity and acceptance, compassion, you know, sort of welcoming the person into the room. And I think a lot of times what we find is that, that we don't even do that for ourselves. I think a lot of times clients find out like, wow, I haven't really, I pushed that away. Like something comes into my mind, something comes into my experience and I push it away. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, let's, let's welcome that in. Let's see what, what that can bring to us in the session. So I don't know if that answers your question. Does that answer your question about attention? Yes. So let's say I'm the student and, and you're, you're my new therapist, Peggy, which I would be so lucky to have you in that role. But here I am coming in with my, with my pain and probably some self-loathing and self-hatred and self-judgments as well. Not only am I in pain, but I hate myself for being in pain. I think I shouldn't be struggling. I look around and it seems like other people aren't struggling this way. And you start getting curious about these things that I maybe have never talked about with anyone and I'm, I'm ashamed of. Why should I pay attention to all of that ugliness or that pain? Well, you know, that's a great question. And one of the things that I think is really important is to work for the student, right? So a lot of times they come in and like, listen, I want to be able to manage my time better, right? And that's what I need from myself. And so that's what we do, right? And unless there's a part of that student that keeps barging in as we're trying to do the time management, then that's what we do. We do time management or we do, hey, how do I talk to my parents? Or, hey, how do I talk to this person I like? right? But if something keeps barging in, I'm like, okay, we got something else coming into the room. And then I have had the conversation of a person saying, yeah, I know, but I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. And I say, okay, you know, but just know that if you ever do want to, there's either myself or another therapist or somebody else who might want to talk with you about it because it's, it's an acceptable thing to talk about. So if we talk about paying attention and listening as being open Mm -hmm. to seeing what's really there, regardless of how uncomfortable it might be. And that that's an important role that you perform as a therapist is to try to help people pay attention to what's there and see what's there 
with an attitude of openness, curiosity, compassion. And that that's, you know, that, that that's how you see your work as a mental health professional. How does that connect to spirituality? I think that spirituality is, we think of it as being about something grander outside ourselves, right? There's part of it that's true, but I think it, it's the avenue to that is often about being able to be fully yourself, like really understand your experience as a human being. And when you're really aware of that and open to it, awake to it, then the connection to that bigger part of what is, you can feel it more. Yeah. So that's how it connects to spirituality. If we are fully aware of what's happening to us, we are in touch with the divine because what happens to us is divine. That separation dissolves. That separation dissolves when we're, I mean, the separation happens in the conceptual world, ideas, when we say that's right, that's wrong. I don't like this. I like that. And in that, that's when we become separated from the divine. But when we're open to our experience, the connection just happens. Yeah. So how do you identify yourself these days, do you still identify as Roman Catholic? Has that changed for you? I don't, I, I don't know if I did, I identify as Roman Catholic. I know that I practice Buddhism and I practice the Buddhist principles. And then I also know that I have a relationship with this, like God. And this God knows that I don't believe in, in him or her as a unit and he forgives me or she forgives me for that (laughs) you know so i go to a catholic church when i'm really scared and i say i'm here and i start asking for stuff there's still a sense of belonging there even if that's not where you find yourself practicing yeah On a daily basis, it sounds like you're much more at home and rooted in Buddhist practices and Buddhist philosophy at this point. Mm -hmm. So what I want to say when I hear say that is, again, that thing that I learned from my great-grandmother, which is you give it time. You have to give yourself time during the day. You, you, You can't be like spiritual and be run around all over the place, right? And for me... Buddhist practices are something that fit how I spend my time. Like I'll spend my time there, but I, I think that keeps me connected so that when I show up to the Catholic church, I'm not a stranger. It's not like, where have you been? You know, I've been there. Yeah. I've just happened to have been at a temple. Or I happen to have been on my cushion, you know, but I'm not a stranger there. That's a beautiful way of putting it. It's almost to connect it back to something you had said before. If you can find a way to be really at home in yourself, Mm -hmm. you can also then feel at home in the different forms that spirituality or religion take. You can feel multiple places. You bring your home with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I don't know when you started 
meditating or really intentionally practicing like mindfulness practices where you slowed yourself down and tried to really listen to yourself, not just other, or, you know, your clients, but really to try to have that relationship with yourself. I'm curious when that started for you. So it started, I guess I was 28 years old. I was a, a new faculty member at UM Miami, right? And, um, and I was studying cross-cultural aspects of mental health. I read about Buddhism and Zen Buddhism, and, and it was described as one of the religious practices that really takes on psychological functioning, right? And so I went like, I showed up to the local Zendo, and I was like, I'm here to study about Zen, right? <laughs> and the guy, the guy told me, and I wanted stuff to read, and I wanted, you know, things. And, and he said to me, oh, well, if I give you stuff to read, you'll know what's been written about Zen. And if I, uh, if I you know, if you go to talks, you'll know what's been said about Zen. But if you want to know Zen, you have to sit with us. And so I said, oh, okay. You know, I'm like 28. I'm single, whatever. I can sit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I started sitting with them. And, and so every morning I would go, I'd get there around 5.30 in the morning and I'd sit. We would sit for about an hour. And, and that's, that was my practice. And that's how I started incorporating attention, like paying attention every day with an attitude of curiosity and sort of like, hey, well, I wonder what shows up into my experience today. I'm imagining... Some people listening to us who have tried meditation, mm -hmm. whether that's for five minutes or they used an app for a few weeks and mm -hmm. tried to, to sit and found it just intolerably boring, intolerably loud inside their heads, just the worst, most useless activity that they've or non-activity that they've ever engaged in mm -hmm. yeah so what do i want to say about that i want to say that one meditation is not the only entree you know entree to spirituality there are others right and so some people like walking meditation some people like chanting some people like prayer some people like going for a long walk in nature you know and so i, I think the quality is to know to pay attention. So what meditation does and how it's different, and I am a big fan of it. Um, Me too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know? But I wasn't always, you know, I wasn't yeah, always. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I learned about Zen as a college student, actually. And my essay in reaction to it was not kind. You know, I thought, ah, I want a big waste of time. But anyway, what meditation does is that in that it's like building a muscle when you go work out it burns and that's when you know you're building that muscle and so in meditation you're uncomfortable and that's when you know that you're learning to direct your mind the way you want to direct your mind as opposed to be directed by your mind it's really neat and important for people to do but you know there are other ways for me, it is the hardest way to pay attention. I mean, I love walking in nature and I love lots of those other mindfulness practices, but when I force myself to sit down, there really is no place to hide from myself. And the agitation, the tension, the disruption that I carry is just 
painfully obvious when I cut out all the other stimulus from my awareness. And that's why I avoided it for a really long time. And interestingly, since the pandemic started, um, I've always meditated some, but I've taken it a lot more seriously since the pandemic started because the suffering has been heightened externally and internally. And almost like out of desperation, seeking, like when I'm really scared. So this is similarly maybe to you seeking the church at those moments, but I find myself, it's not optional anymore. I just need to get quiet and listen. I'm wondering, you've spent many, many years now in this practice, and I'm sure it's unfolded in lots of different ways in your life. But, you know, what do you find yourself drawing on right now? We're three weeks before the presidential election. We've been in this um, coronavirus pandemic for seven months now. Are there aspects of your spiritual life, your spiritual practices of getting quiet and really listening and paying attention that have been helping you and that have you know been instructive during this time, Peggy? So um, yeah, what comes to my mind is the idea, like when you were describing, I was picturing you sitting and like being there with yourself and being pretty uncomfortable with maybe what you were experiencing then it occurred to me that the part of that, right, is how we respond to ourselves. And if we respond to ourselves with compassion and acceptance, then we're like, hey, you know, it's okay. And it's when we think we shouldn't be feeling this, or I'm a terrible meditator, I shouldn't be feeling that, that we get up, we get up from the cushion because we judged ourselves or the experience. So I bring that up because I think when I'm in touch with what I'm experiencing now and all the layers of it, the pandemic, the election and all that, when I'm in touch with that experience, I am unsettled. So for me, the challenge is to know that I can be unsettled and not run away from that. But like, hey, yeah, these are unsettling times. And so, you know, we I go gently in the world, like I'm more careful and more caring with how I interact with people because it's really very tumultuous times and that's it just the moment like how can I be a version of myself that I like at this moment in interaction with this person and if I can get that then I go to the next moment and that's how it is the other thing I want to say about that is that it feels a little bit like a high wire right where it's like the saving grace is to just go gently. You just go slowly as opposed to reacting to all the things that we're seeing because then we add to the chaos in our own reactions. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. Since the pandemic, it seems like, yeah, people around me, including the people I work with, have even less of a buffer than usual. We're all just kind of like raw nerves. You know, there's a lot of raw nerves and a lot of just really, I like your, you know, up on the high, high wire because just the slightest wrong, the slightest misstep could be kind of calamitous for our connections with one another right now. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah, I think it's just been a real wake up call to me about my own reactivity and how easy it is to do additional harm as I go about my life. If I'm hurting and I haven't found a way to nurture or take care of myself, I'm much more likely to accidentally hurt someone else. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to, to not get confused by our own pain, right? Like, well, this, because sometimes we feel the pain for somebody else, like on behalf of somebody else, you know, and we want to do something on behalf of that person. Uh, and it's like, yeah, how to give it time and to be quiet and pay attention and be able to be really intentional about what it is that we do. And I think that's a big challenge right now. It sounds like the way that meditation, one of the ways that maybe you connected to meditation as opposed to your college self that was not into it at all. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's many ways you've connected to meditation over time, but one of the things I was hearing and wanting to talk about a little bit more is when you said learning to you know, attend to your own experience, your own pain and discomfort with gentleness and with compassion. That sounds different than, I think sometimes there's a popular notion of just sitting on a cushion and clearing yourself of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're shaking your yeah, head. Maybe you happen. could talk, <laughs> right. So yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit more about that part of getting quiet and paying attention to ourselves. Yeah. So one of the things that you, when you said about myself now, versus my college self that said, ah, meditation is blah, right? I think one of the things I don't want to underestimate is the importance of the people that surround you and support you in that, right? Because most people go about their meditation practice by themselves. And that is really hard at the beginning, right? I would encourage people to, to give themselves the opportunity to practice with others. Because I think others sort of help you hold the experience, right? For me, the experience of beginning this meditation practice the second time around, not not the first time around, the second time around was that there were people who were kind to me about my struggles with the meditation. And they were kind to me about the things that were coming up in my mind. That helped me like, oh, okay, well, this this is what it is and it's okay. So I think that's the main difference is that you, that attitude of, and at the beginning, you might not be able to do it for yourself, but if somebody can do it for you and be kind to you as you go through it, then you learn, oh yeah, I can be kind to myself about this. It's, as you say that, I mean, it's, I have a bell and it's a pleasant sounding bell that's ringing in my head saying, that sounds a lot like therapy, good therapy. Mm-hmm. Is that is that there's somebody there who can be kind to me and kind of help me help walk with me while I learn to be with myself differently. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, right? It's uh, is the power, and, and you know, within Buddhist practice, is the power of the sangha. You know, the group of people. And if we think about uh, spirituality as it manifests in religion, is you know, the power of the congregation, the power of the people that can help us as we discover who we are to sort of attend to who we are. This is a part of you and your life that you have gone 
very deeply into. And I know that we can't, you know, we can't go to all those places in an interview like this. Um, but what I wonder about is how do you invite the college students that you counsel into the possibility of a practice of attention? How do you introduce that to them if they, if you think that could be helpful um, and they seem like they might be open to it? Um, so how do I invite them to it? I think the first, the first thing to do is to be respectful of what they are requesting and needing at the time, right? It's like uh, I, I alluded to it before. If somebody says, hey, I really need time management skills. You're not recommending meditation. No. I'm not. I'm going <laughs> to say, you know, this, I'm gonna, we're going to do yeah. that, right? Yeah. And then I do in the session say, oh, well, let's pay attention to that. Like what's emerging? Like I'll ask, hey, what's, what's emerging in your mind right now? Which is in essence meditation, right? Like, hey, what are you noticing right now? Or I might say, oh, let's take a couple of deep breaths and tell me what comes up in your mind. Right? And that is what we do on the cushion. Like what happens, what comes up. And then, you know, whatever they bring up, we apply to the, to the problem that they want to fix at that moment. And then generally the person seems to like that. They end up saying it themselves. Like, oh, I'm noticing I'm thinking this. Or I noticed I thought that. And then I might say, you know, if you want to notice some more, <laughs> there's meditation. And they might be like, ah, I don't want to do that. And that's okay. But, uh, but they might want to. And if they want to, then I'll tell them more about it. I guess I'm just thinking about some of my days lately where as much as I had the intention of slowing down and being more mindful and being more present, I just had my cell phone glued to my hand. I was checking all, all the news sites and I'm not even on social media anymore, but I was just doing this kind of frantic loop on the internet for days. And it was so addictive, quite frankly, to stay just kind of like plugged into that frantic, uncertain energy of the outside world that I wonder, you know, for college students right now who are isolated, many of them not getting a lot of like in-person connection, that some of these other ways that we have of, of kind of checking out what's going on outside of ourselves. If you, maybe you're not recommending meditation per se, but what do you notice that might get in the way of paying closer attention? So I think we all need to be very curious about the impact of the phones and the screens on the brain. We are finding out all sorts of very interesting things about that. And, and there's also studies about the impact of meditation on the brain. And the impact of all these different stimuli on the brain at the same time is not good, right? And just from a neurophysiological perspective, we're getting lots of data that suggests that we ought to be a little bit more careful with how much we input into our brains. So one of the things I tell people, and it comes from my own experience in my family, in my family, we do family retreats, right? And so for two weeks in the summer, we go somewhere where there are no phones and nothing, right? And it took a while before 
the kids in the group realize, like at the beginning, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like, oh, no, no, look, figure out within a day or two, they could see that, hey, I can be really happy without my phone. You know, there could be a lot of things, but it, and I, and I think having had that experience for them now, now that they're in college, they're like, oh yeah, I remember. I remember I can do that. And so I invite people to tap, to just have a weekend off and see what it feels like for them. That sounds hard, Peggy. It is. It's hard. And the way that I try to persuade somebody is like, and know that come Monday, you can go back full swing, full swing. This is just going to be two days. And most everybody says, you know, yeah, it was good. And most everybody says, and I, it's so hard for me not to fall back in. And so a lot of times that is the work of therapy. Like how do we make little spaces where you can let go and just focus on what's happening right now for you, as opposed to what all kinds of messages are coming into your mind from your phone or whatever. That we're getting so bombarded and that has become so normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely normal that you get interrupted and all the time. Yeah. How do you think practicing meditation regularly has impacted your own mental health? It's made a world of difference. I think it just has made uh, me trust people more. I know it sounds when I say that, a lot of people, like if you're listening to this and I say it's made me trust people more and you get scared, oh, we got we to gotta talk. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because that's one of the main things that I think that trauma does to us. It makes us trust people less. And it's important for us to have people to trust. You know, and uh, so that's just a little aside thing that I think it's important, right? So it's made me trust people more. And I think prior to that, I probably would have said, oh no, you shouldn't trust people, right? Do you have trauma in your background, Peggy? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. absolutely, yeah. And so both sociopolitical trauma and then also interpersonal. So yeah. And I think a lot of it sometimes is just from frightened parents. That they're like, be careful, be careful, be careful, you know? Uh, and I think that's traumatizing. And, I, and a, lot of, a lot of college students, a lot of university students are, are trying to figure out, well, how do I, how am I going to be myself in the world when I got all these, like, things are scary? And so it's like, oh, one of the ways is I got to get all A's, or I got to do this, or I got to do that, right? So those are all fun and important ways to, to explore. Like, hey, who are you? Like, what's... How are you weaving your life together? I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I sidetracked you, but it was meaningful to hear you say, yes, you, you too can have been through trauma and fear, right? That fear causes us to trust one another less. And so meditation, has meditation helped you manage your fear? Oh, yes. That was the initial question. How has meditation impacted my life? Uh, yes, it has allowed me to trust people more, including the person that I'm working with in therapy, right? And to, to trust that person more and to really enjoy that person more. I think meditation is uncomfortable at times. And then in between all those uncomfortable moments, sometimes you get like these moments of joy 
and you're like, oh, that's how it is. And so it's allowed me to delight in people more. Like, oh, okay, so this is how this person is. And that helps my, it helps me anyway, enjoy therapy. I think that's the main way. And then in my own life, it helps me enjoy the process more and not be, and not be as afraid. For some reason, as we get towards the end of this conversation, I find myself returning to the cancer patients that you worked with for a long time. And you, I think you'd said that they wished that they'd paid more attention. Yeah. So there are two striking things, right, uh, that I learned from them. One was the idea that they were moments of true, profound happiness, even after the diagnosis, you know, or even um, more powerfully than before the diagnosis. There were moments of true, profound happiness because they were paying attention. And then they said, I wish I'd paid attention before, but not so much in regret, but like, oh man, life would have been just so much richer if I had paid attention, but not so much like, oh, well, I wish I had, you know, it wasn't like that. So I think those are the two things that there can be profound happiness, even amidst suffering, and that there can be, you know, if you pay attention, you just give yourself so much more of an opportunity to be intentional about how you put your life together. It's like, hey, I really know myself. I know how to be in this relationship better, or I know how to choose my career better because I'm, I really know what's going into that decision. Which is so relevant to students in college who are yeah. trying to figure out relationships sometimes on a new level or at a new depth mm-hmm. and think about what, what they want to do, you know, what they want to do for money and who they want to be in the world outside of their family in which they were raised and often quite sheltered. So mm-hmm. having more connection to, I sometimes think it's absurd that we ask people who are 18 to kind of pick, pick that path because I, I certainly didn't emerge from my childhood trusting myself very much yet yeah and um i don't know you have so much more that happens to you after you're 18 that just shapes who you are so a lot of times i say you know therapy early therapy right when you're a young adult or an adolescent it's about learning the process learning to know what to pay attention to so that you can apply it later and you and just keep applying it at different moments in your life so it's about learning that process I really like that. I really learning what to pay attention to. So you can keep applying that in different ways over time. Yeah. So that's a lot of the ways I explain therapy. It's like we have a specific problem and yeah, we'll definitely work on that problem. But the main takeaway is going to be how to go about solving that problem. What's important to you and, and because that you'll apply over and over again. And one of the things I like to tell students is like, you know, I work for you right? Because we're in therapy and not, you know, I work for you as an 18 year old, as a 19 year old, as a 20 year old, but I also work for you as a 65 year old. You're not there yet, but I'm also working for you then. 
That's really beautiful. How have students responded to that? Usually they laugh. By then, it's usually by then they usually know what I mean because uh-huh. I've been working uh-huh. with them for a while, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah," and they they usually laugh. I think that that can have a couple of different meanings, right? Like you're thinking about you're working towards the they're becoming, right? They're that you're working towards their becoming over time and over a lifetime, mm-hmm. and having myself been in lots of therapy at different times the therapist that i saw when i was 18 is still working for me at 40 in certain ways even actively like i think of things that he or she told me and i they're like touchstones that have stayed with me over time and so i think it's both literal and metaphorical yeah yeah i like that that's very true because yeah i know that i i think of uh therapist and I think oh that's what they meant yeah <laughs> sometimes it takes a while yeah <laughs> any kind of last thoughts or words or feelings that you would want to share before we end this conversation no I mean I think that we've we've talked about it all and there's a lot more to talk about I know uh, and so but it seems like today's good. I feel good about it too, Peggy. Um, It's been delightful to spend this time with you and I hope hope you will join me again at some point as well. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peggy. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.